Story eleven of Youth and the Bright Medusa and the Troll Garden by Willa Cather. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story eleven: The Marriage of Phaedra. The sequence of events was such that McMaster did not make his pilgrimage to Hugh Treffinger's studio until three years after that painter's death. McMaster was himself a painter, an American of the Gallicized type, who spent his winters in New York, his summers in Paris, and no inconsiderable amount of time on the broad waters between. He had often contemplated stopping in London on one of his return trips in the late autumn, but he had always deferred leaving Paris until the prick of necessity drove him home by the quickest and shortest route. Treffinger was a comparatively young man at the time of his death, and there had seemed no occasion for haste until haste was of no avail. Then, possibly, though there had been some correspondence between them, McMaster felt certain qualms about meeting in the flesh a man who in the flesh was so diversely reported. His intercourse with Treffinger's work had been so deep and satisfying, so apart from other applications, that he rather dreaded a critical juncture of any sort. He had always felt himself singularly inept in personal relations, and in this case he had avoided the issue until it was no longer to be feared or hoped for. There still remained, however, Treffinger's great unfinished picture, The Marriage of Phaedra, which had never left his studio, and of which McMaster's friends had now and again brought report that it was the painter's most characteristic production. The young man arrived in London in the evening, and the next morning went out to Kensington to find Treffinger's studio. It lay in one of the perplexing by-streets off Holland Road, and the number he found on a door set in a high garden wall, the top of which was covered with broken green glass, and over which a budding lilac-bush nodded. Treffinger's plate was still there, and a card requesting visitors to ring for the attendant. In response to McMaster's ring, the door was opened by a cleanly built little man, clad in a shooting-jacket and trousers that had been made for an ampler figure. He had a fresh complexion, eyes of that common uncertain shade of grey, and was closely shaven except for the incipient mutton-chops on his ruddy cheeks. He bore himself in a manner strikingly capable, and there was a sort of trimness and alertness about him, despite the too generous shoulders of his coat. In one hand he held a bulldog pipe, and in the other a copy of Sporting Life. While McMaster was explaining the purpose of his call, he noticed that the man surveyed him critically, though not impertinently. He was admitted into a little tank of a lodge made of whitewashed stone, the back door and windows opening upon a garden. A visitor's book and a pile of catalogues lay on a deal table, together with a bottle of ink and some rusty pens. The wall was ornamented with photographs and colored prints of racing favorites. "'The studio has only opened to the public on Saturdays and Sundays,' explained the man. He referred to himself as Jimes, but of course we make exceptions in the case of painters. Lida Elling Treffinger herself is on the continent, but Sir Hugh's orders was that painters was to have the run of the place. He selected a key from his pocket, and threw open the door into the studio, which, like the lodge, was built against the wall of the garden. 
McMaster entered a long, narrow room built of smoothed planks, painted a light green, cold and damp, even on that fine May morning. The room was utterly bare of furniture, unless a stepladder, a model throne, and a rack laden with large leather portfolios could be accounted such, and was windowless, without other openings than the door and the skylight, under which hung the unfinished picture itself. McMaster had never seen so many of Treffinger's paintings together. He knew the painter had married a woman with money, and had been able to keep such of his pictures as he wished. These, with all of 182 his replicas and studies, he had left as a sort of common legacy to the younger men of the schools he had originated. As soon as he was left alone, McMaster sat down on the edge of the model throne before the unfinished picture. Here, indeed, was what he had come for. It rather paralyzed his receptivity for the moment, but gradually the thing found its way to him. At one o'clock he was standing before the collection of studies done for Boccaccio's garden when he heard a voice at his elbow. "'Pardon, sir, but I was about to lock up and go to lunch. Are you looking for the figure study of Boccaccio himself?' James queried respectfully. Lady Elling Treffinger give it to Mr. Rossiter to take down to Oxford for some lectures he's been a-given there. Did he never paint out his studies, then? asked McMaster with perplexity. Here are two completed ones for this picture. Why did he keep them? I don't know as I could say as to that, sir, replied James, smiling indulgently. But that was his way. That is to say, he pinted out very frequent, but he always made two studies to stand, one in watercolors and one in oils, before he went at the final picture, to say nothing of all the post-studies he made in pencil before he begun on the composition proper at all. He was that particular. You see, he wasn't so keen for the final effect as for the proper pinting of his pictures. He used to say they ought to be well made, the same as any other article of trade. I can lay my hand on the Poe studies for you, sir. He rummaged in one of the portfolios, and produced half a dozen drawings. These three, he continued, was discarded. These two was the Poe's he finally accepted, this one without alteration, as it were. That's in Paris, as I remember, James continued reflectively. It went with a St. Cecilia into the Baron H.'s collection. Could you tell me, sir, as e it still? I don't like to lose account of them, but some has changed hands since Sir Hugh's death. H.'s collection is still intact, I believe, replied McMaster. You were with Treffinger long? From my boyhood, sir, replied James with gravity. I was a stable boy when he took me. You were his man, then? That's it, sir. Nobody else ever done anything around the studio. I always mixed his colors, and he taught me to do a share of the varnishing. He said as ow there wasn't a ouse in England as could do it proper. You ain't looked at the marriage yet, sir? He asked abruptly, glancing doubtfully at McMaster, and indicating with his thumb the picture under the north light. Not very closely. I prefer to begin with something simpler. That's rather appalling at first glance, replied McMaster. Well, may you say that, sir, said James warmly. That one regular killed, sir, you. 
It regular bulk him up, and nothing will ever convince me as ow it didn't bring on his second stroke. When McMaster walked back to High Street to take his bus, his mind was divided between two exultant convictions. He felt that he had not only found Treffinger's greatest picture, but that in James he had discovered a kind of cryptic index to the painter's personality, a clue which, if tactfully followed, might lead to much. Several days after his first visit to the studio, McMaster wrote to Lady Mary Percy, telling her that he would be in London for some time, and asking her if he might call. Lady Mary was an only sister of Lady Ellen Treffinger, the painter's widow, and McMaster had known her during one winter he spent at Nice. He had known her, indeed, very well, and Lady Mary, who was astonishingly frank and communicative upon all subjects, had been no less so upon the matter of her sister's unfortunate marriage. In her reply to his note, Lady Mary named an afternoon when she would be alone. She was as good as her word, and when McMaster arrived he found the drawing-room empty. Lady Mary entered shortly after he was announced. She was a tall woman, thin and stiffly jointed, and her body stood out under the folds of her gown with the rigour of cast iron. This rather metallic suggestion was further carried out in her heavily knuckled hands, her stiff grey hair, and her long, bold-featured face, which was saved from freakishness only by her alert eyes. "'Really,' said Lady Mary, taking a seat beside him and giving him a sort of military inspection through her nose-glasses, "'really, I had begun to fear that I had lost you altogether. It's four years since I saw you at Nice, isn't it? I was in Paris last winter, but I heard nothing from you. I was in New York then.' It occurred to me that you might be. And why are you in London? Can you ask? replied McMaster gallantly. Lady Mary smiled ironically. Uh, but for what else, incidentally? Well, incidentally, I came to see Treffinger's studio and his unfinished picture. Since I've been here, I've decided to stay the summer. I'm even thinking of attempting to do a biography of him. So that is what brought you to London? not exactly i had really no intention of anything so serious when i came it's his last picture i fancy that has rather thrust it upon me the notion has settled down on me like a thing destined you'll not be offended if i question the clemency of such a destiny remarked lady mary dryly isn't there rather a surplus of books on that subject already oh, such as they are oh i've read them all here McMaster faced Lady Mary triumphantly. He has quite escaped your amiable critics, he added, smiling. I know well enough what you think, and I dare say we are not much on art, said Lady Mary with tolerant good humour. We leave that to peoples who have no physique. Treffinger made a stir for a time, but it seems that we are not capable of a sustained appreciation of such extraordinary methods in the end we go back to the pictures we find agreeable and unperplexing he was regarded as an experiment i fancy and now it seems that he was rather an unsuccessful one if you've come to us in a missionary spirit we'll tolerate you politely but we'll laugh in our sleeve i warn you 
"'That really doesn't daunt me, Lady Mary,' declared McMaster blandly. "'As I told you, I'm a man with a mission.' Lady Mary laughed her hoarse, baritone laugh. "'Bravo! And you've come to me for inspiration for your panegyric.' McMaster smiled with some embarrassment. "'Not altogether for that purpose, but I want to consult you, Lady Mary, about the advisability of troubling Lady Ellen Treffinger in the matter. It seems scarcely legitimate to go on without asking her to give some sort of grace to my proceedings, yet I feared the whole subject might be painful to her. I shall rely wholly upon your discretion.' "'I think she would prefer to be consulted,' replied Lady Mary judicially. I can't understand how she endures to have the wretched affair continually raked up, but she does. She seems to feel a sort of moral responsibility. Ellen has always been singularly conscientious about this matter, in so far as her light goes, which rather puzzles me, as hers is not exactly a magnanimous nature. She is certainly trying to do what she believes to be the right thing. I shall write to her, and you can see her when she returns from Italy. I want very much to meet her. She is, I suppose, quite recovered in every way? queried McMaster hesitatingly. No, I can't say that she is. She has remained in much the same condition she sank to before his death. He trampled over pretty much whatever there was in her, I fancy. Women don't recover from wounds of that sort at least not women of Ellen's grain. They go on bleeding inwardly. "'You, at any rate, have not grown more reconciled,' McMaster ventured. "'Oh, I give him his dues. He was a colorist, I grant you. But that is a vague and unsatisfactory quality to marry to. Lady Ellen Treffinger found it so.' "'But, my dear Lady Mary,' expostulated McMaster, "'and just repress me if I'm becoming too personal.' but it must in the first place have been a marriage of choice on her part as well as on his lady mary poised her glasses on her large forefinger and assumed an attitude suggestive of the clinical lecture-room as she replied ellen my dear boy is an essentially romantic person she is quiet about it but she runs deep i never knew how deep until i came against her on the issue of that marriage she was always discontented as a girl. She found things dull and prosaic, and the ardor of his courtship was agreeable to her. He met her during her first season in town. She is handsome, and there were plenty of other men, but I grant you your scowling brigand was the most picturesque of the lot. In his courtship, as in everything else, he was theatrical to the point of being ridiculous, but Ellen's sense of humor is not her strongest quality. He had the charm of celebrity, the air of a man who could storm his way through anything to get what he wanted. That sort of vehemence is particularly effective with women like Ellen, who can be warmed only by reflected heat, and she couldn't at all stand out against it. He convinced her of his necessity, and that done, all's done. I can't help thinking that even on such a basis the marriage should have turned out better," McMaster remarked reflectively. The marriage, Lady Mary continued with a shrug, was made on the basis of a mutual misunderstanding. 
Ellen, in the nature of the case, believed that she was doing something quite out of the ordinary in accepting him, and expected concessions which, apparently, it never occurred to him to make. After his marriage he relapsed into his old habits of incessant work, broken by violent and often brutal relaxations. He insulted her friends and foisted his own upon her, many of them well calculated to arouse aversion in any well-bred girl. He had Gilini constantly at the house, a homeless vagabond, whose conversation was impossible. I don't say, mind you, that he had not grievances on his side. He had probably overrated the girl's possibilities, and he let her see that he was disappointed in her. Only a large and generous nature could have borne with him, and Ellen's is not that. She could not at all understand that odious strain of plebeian pride which plumes itself upon not having risen above its sources. As McMaster drove back to his hotel, he reflected that Lady Mary Percy had probably had good cause for dissatisfaction with her brother-in-law. Treffinger was, indeed, the last man who should have married into the Percy family. The son of a small tobacconist, he had grown up a sign-painter's apprentice, idle, lawless, and practically letterless, until he had drifted into the night classes of the Albert League, where Gilini sometimes lectured. From the moment he came under the eye and influence of that erratic Italian, then a political exile, his life had swerved sharply from its old channel. This man had been at once incentive and guide, friend and master to his pupil. He had taken the raw clay out of the London streets and moulded it anew. Seemingly he had divined at once where the boy's possibilities lay, and had thrown aside every canon of orthodox instruction in the training of him. Under him, Treffinger acquired his superficial yet facile knowledge of the classics, had steeped himself in the monkish Latin and medieval romances which later gave his work so naive and remote a quality. That was the beginning of the wattle fences, the cobble pave, the brown roof-beams, the cunningly wrought fabrics that gave to his pictures such a richness of decorative effect. As he had told Lady Mary Percy, McMaster had found the imperative inspiration of his purpose in Treffinger's unfinished picture, The Marriage of Phaedra. He had always believed that the key to Treffinger's individuality lay in his singular education. In the Roman de la Rose, in Boccaccio and Amadis, those works which had literally transcribed themselves upon the blank soul of the London street boy and through which he had been born into the world of spiritual things. Treffinger had been a man who lived after his imagination, and his mind, his ideals, and, as McMaster believed, even his personal ethics, had to the last been colored by the trend of his early training. There was in him alike the freshness and spontaneity, the frank brutality and the religious mysticism which lay well back of the fifteenth century. In the marriage of Phaedra, McMaster found the ultimate expression of this spirit, the final word as to Treffinger's point of view. As in all Treffinger's classical subjects, the conception was wholly medieval. 
this phaedra just turning from her husband and maiden to greet her husband's son giving him her first fearsome glance from under her half-lifted veil was no daughter of minos the daughter of heathenness and the early church she was doomed to torturing visions and scourgings and the wrangling of soul with flesh the venerable theseus might have been victorious charlemagne and phaedra's maidens belonged rather in the train of blanche of castile than at the cretan court in the earlier studies hippolytus had been done with a more pagan suggestion but in each successive drawing the glorious figure had been deflowered of something of its serene unconsciousness until in the canvas under the skylight he appeared a very christian knight this male figure and the face of phaedra painted with such magical preservation of tone under the heavy shadow of the veil were plainly treffinger's highest achievement of craftsmanship by what labor he had reached the seemingly inevitable composition of the picture with its twenty figures its plenitude of light and air its restful distances seen through white porticos countless studies bore witness from james's attitude toward the picture mcmaster could well conjecture what the painters had been this picture was always uppermost in james's mind its custodianship formed in his eyes his occupation he was manifestly apprehensive when visitors not many came nowadays lingered near it it was the marriage as killed him he would often say and for the matter of that it did like to have been the death of all of us by the end of his second week in london mcmaster had begun the notes for his study of hugh treffinger and his work when his researches led him occasionally to visit the studios of treffinger's friends and erstwhile disciples he found their treffinger manner fading as the ring of treffinger's personality died out in them one by one they were stealing back into the fold of national british art the hand that had wound them up was still mcmaster despaired of them and confined himself more and more exclusively to the studio to such of treffinger's letters as were available they were for the most part singularly negative and colourless and to his interrogation of treffinger's man he could not himself have traced the successive steps by which he was gradually admitted into james's confidence certainly most of his adroit strategies to that end failed humiliatingly and whatever it was that built up an understanding between them must have been instinctive and intuitive on both sides when at last james became anecdotal personal there was that in every word that he let fall which put breath and blood into mcmaster's book james had so long been steeped in that penetrating personality that he fairly exuded it many of his very phrases mannerisms and opinions were impressions that he had taken on like wet plaster in his daily contact with treffinger inwardly he was lined with cast-off epitheliums as outwardly he was clad in the painter's discarded coats if the painter's letters were formal and perfunctory if his expressions to his friends had been extravagant contradictory and often apparently insincere still mcmaster felt himself not entirely without authentic sources 
It was James who possessed Treffinger's legend. It was with James that he had laid aside his pose. Only in his studio, alone, and face to face with his work, as it seemed, had the man invariably been himself. James had known him in the one attitude in which he was entirely honest. Their relation had fallen well within the painter's only indubitable integrity. James's report of Treffinger was distorted by no hallucination of artistic insight, colored by no interpretation of his own. He merely held what he had heard and seen. His mind was a sort of camera obscura. His very limitations made him the more literal and minutely accurate. One morning, when McMaster was seated before the marriage of Phaedra, James entered on his usual round of dusting. "'I've heard from Lady Elling by the post, sir,' he remarked, "'and she's give orders to have the house put in readiness. I doubt she'll be here by Thursday or Friday next.' "'She spends most of her time abroad?' queried McMaster. On the subject of Lady Treffinger, James consistently maintained a very delicate reserve. "'Well, you could hardly say she was that, sir. She finds the house a bit dull, I dare say, so during the season she stops mostly with Lady Mary Percy at Grosvenor Square. Lady Mary's a homely sister.' After a few moments he continued, speaking in jerks governed by the rigour of his dusting. "'Only this morning I come upon this scarf-pin, exhibiting a very striking instance of that article, and I recalled as how Sir Hugh gave it me when he was a-courtin' a lady Elling. Blowed if I ever see a man go in for a woman like him. He was that gone, sir. He never went in on anything so hard before nor since, till he went in on the marriage there though he mostly went in on things pretty keen. Add the measles when he was thirty, strong as cholera, and comes close to dying of him. He wasn't strong for Lady Elling's set. They was a bit too stiff for him. A free and easy gentleman he was. He liked his dinner with a few friends, and them jolly, but he wasn't much on what you might call big affairs. But once he went in for Lady Elling, he broke himself to newt paces. He give way his rings and pins, and the tiler's man and the haberdasher's man was at his rooms continually. He got himself up for a club in Piccadilly. He starved himself thin, and worried himself white, and ironed himself out, and drawed himself tight as a bowstring. It was a good job he'd become a winner, or I don't know what I've been to pay. The next week, in consequence of an invitation from Lady Ellen Treffinger, McMaster went one afternoon to take tea with her. He was shown into the garden that lay between the residence and the studio, where the tea-table was set under a gnarled pear-tree. Lady Ellen rose as he approached. He was astonished to note how tall she was, and greeted him graciously, saying that she already knew him through her sister. McMaster felt a certain satisfaction in her, in her reassuring poise and repose, in the charming modulations of her voice, and the indolent reserve of her full almond eyes. He was even delighted to find her face so inscrutable, though it chilled his own warmth, and made the open frankness he had wished to permit himself impossible. 
It was a long face, narrow in the chin, very delicately featured, yet steeled by an impassive mask of self control. It was behind just such finely cut, close sealed faces, McMaster reflected, that nature sometimes hid astonishing secrets. But in spite of this suggestion of hardness, he felt that the unerring taste that Treffinger had always shown in larger manners had not deserted him when he came to the choosing of a wife, and he admitted that he could not himself have selected a woman who looked more as Treffinger's wife should look. While he was explaining the purpose of his frequent visits to the studio, she heard him with courteous interest. I have read, I think, everything that has been published on Sir Hugh Treffinger's work, and it seems to me that there is much left to be said," he concluded. I believe they are rather inadequate, she remarked vaguely. She hesitated a moment, absently fingering the ribbons of her gown, then continued without raising her eyes. I hope you will not think me too exacting if I ask to see the proofs of such chapters of your work as have to do with Sir Hugh's personal life. I have always asked that privilege." McMaster hastily assured her as to this, adding, I mean to touch only on such facts in his personal life as have to do directly with his work, such as his monkish education under Gilini. I see your meaning, I think," said Lady Ellen, looking at him with wide, uncomprehending eyes. When McMaster stopped at the studio on leaving the house, he stood for some time before Treffinger's one portrait of himself, that brigand of a picture with its full throat and square head, the short upper lip blackened by the close-clipped moustache, the wiry hair tossed down over the forehead, the strong white teeth set hard on a short pipe-stem. He could well understand what manifold tortures the mere grain of the man's strong red and brown flesh might have inflicted upon a woman like Lady Ellen. He could conjecture, too, Treffinger's impotent revolt against that very repose which had so dazzled him when it first defied his daring and how once possessed of it, his first instinct had been to crush it, since he could not melt it. Toward the close of the season, Lady Ellen Treffinger left town. McMaster's work was progressing rapidly, and he and James wore away the days in their peculiar relation, which by this time had much of friendliness. Excepting for the regular visits of a Jewish picture-dealer, there were few intrusions upon their solitude. Occasionally a party of Americans rang at the little door in the garden wall, but usually they departed speedily for the Moorish hall and tinkling fountain of the great show-studio of London not far away. This Jew, an Austrian by birth, who had a large business in Melbourne, Australia, was a man of considerable discrimination, and at once selected the marriage of Phaedra as the object of his especial interest. When, upon his first visit, Lichtenstein had declared the picture one of the things done for time, McMaster had rather warmed toward him, and had talked to him very freely. Later, however, the man's repulsive personality and innate vulgarity so wore upon him that the more genuine the Jew's appreciation, the more he resented it, and the more base he somehow felt it to be. 
It annoyed him to see Lichtenstein walking up and down before the picture, shaking his head and blinking his watery eyes over his nose-glasses, ejaculating, "'Dot is a kim, a kim. It is vot to goom dem dozent miles for such a painting, eh? To make your appreciate such a work of art, it is necessary to take it away while she is napping. She has never appreciated until she has lost.' but knowingly she will buy back james had from the first felt such a distrust of the man that he would never leave him alone in the studio for a moment when lichtenstein insisted upon having lady ellen treffinger's address james rose to the point of insolence it ain't no use to give it no way lady treffinger never has nothing to do with dealers mcmaster quietly repented his rash confidences fearing that he might indirectly cause lady ellen annoyance from this merciless speculator and he recalled with chagrin that lichtenstein had extorted from him little by little pretty much the entire plan of his book and especially the place in it which the marriage of phaedra was to occupy by this time the first chapters of mcmaster's book were in the hands of his publisher and his visits to the studio were necessarily less frequent the greater part of his time was now employed with the engravers who were to reproduce such of treffinger's pictures as he intended to use as illustrations he returned to his hotel late one evening after a long and vexing day at the engravers to find james in his room seated on his steamer trunk by the window with the outline of a great square draped in sheets resting against his knee why james what's up he cried in astonishment glancing inquiringly at the sheeted object ain't you seen de piper sir jerked out the man no now i think of it i haven't even looked at a paper i've been at the engraver's plant all day i haven't seen anything james drew a copy of the times from his pocket and handed it to him pointing with a tragic finger to a paragraph in the social column it was merely the announcement of lady ellen treffinger's engagement to captain alexander gresham well what of it my man that surely is her privilege james took the paper turned to another page and silently pointed to a paragraph in the art notes which stated that lady treffinger had presented to the x gallery the entire collection of paintings and sketches now in her late husband's studio with the exception of his unfinished picture the marriage of phaedra which she had sold for a large sum to an australian dealer who had come to london purposely to secure some of treffinger's paintings mcmaster pursed up his lips and sat down his overcoat still on well james this is something of a something of a jolt eh it never occurred to me she'd really do it lord you don't know her sir said james bitterly still staring at the floor in an attitude of abandoned dejection mcmaster started up in a flash of enlightenment what on earth have you got there james it's not surely it's not yes it is sir broke in the man excitedly it's the marriage itself it ain't a-goin to australia nohow but man what are you going to do with it it's lichtenstein's property now as it seems 
"'It ain't, sir. That it ain't. No, by God, it ain't!' shouted James, breaking into a choking fury. He controlled himself with an effort, and added supplicatingly, "'Oh, sir, you ain't a-goin' to see a go to Australia where they send convicts!' He unpinned and flung aside the sheets, as though to let Phaedra plead for herself. McMaster sat down again, and looked sadly at the doomed masterpiece. The notion of James having carried it across London that night rather appealed to his fancy. There was certainly a flavor about such a high-handed proceeding. "'However did you get it here?' he queried. "'I got a four-wheeler and come over direct, sir. Good job I happen to have the change about me.' "'You came up High Street, up Piccadilly, through the Haymarket and Trafalgar Square, and into the Strand?' queried McMaster, with relish. "'Yes, sir, of course, sir,' assented James, with surprise. McMaster laughed delightedly. "'It was a beautiful idea, James, but I'm afraid we can't carry it any further.' "'I was thinking as how it would be a rare chance to get you to take the marriage over to Paris for a year or two, sir, until the thing blows over,' suggested James blandly. "'I'm afraid that's out of the question, James. I haven't the right stuff in me for a pirate, or even a vulgar smuggler, I'm afraid.' McMaster found it surprisingly difficult to say this, and he busied himself with the lamp as he said it. He heard James' hand fall heavily on the trunk-top, and he discovered that he very much disliked sinking in the man's estimation. "'Well, sir,' remarked James in a more formal tone, after a protracted silence, "'then there's nothing for it but as how I have to make away with it myself.' "'And how about your character, James? The evidence will be heavy against you, and even if Lady Treffinger didn't prosecute, you'd be done for.' "'Blow my character, your pardon, sir,' cried James, starting to his feet. "'What do I want of a character? I chucked a old thing, and damned lively, too. The shop's to be sold out, and my place is gone anyhow. I'm a-goin' to enlist, or try the gold-fields. I've lived too long with artists. I'd never give satisfaction in livery now. You know how it is yourself, sir. There ain't no life like it, no how. For a moment McMaster was almost equal to abetting James in his theft. He reflected that pictures had been whitewashed, or hidden in the crypts of churches, or under the floors of palaces, from meaner motives, and to save them from a fate less ignominious. But presently, with a sigh, he shook his head. No, James, it won't do at all. It has been tried over and over again, ever since the world has been a-going, and pictures a-making. It was tried in Florence and in Venice, but the pictures were always carried away in the end. You see, the difficulty is that although Treffinger told you what was not to be done with the picture, he did not say definitely what was to be done with it. Do you think Lady Treffinger really understands that he did not want it to be sold? Well, sir, it was like this, sir, said James, resuming his seat on the trunk, and again resting the picture against his knee. My memory is clear as glass about it. After Sir Hugh got up from his first stroke, he took a fresh start at the marriage. Before that he had been working at it only at night for a while back. 
The legend was the big picture then, and was under the north light where he worked of a morning. But one day he bid me take the legend down and put the marriage in its place, and he says, dashing on his jacket, Jimes, this is a start for the finish this time. From that on he worked at the night picture in the morning, a thing contrary to his custom. The marriage went wrong and wrong, and Sir Hugh a-getting seedier and seedier every day. He tried models and models, and smudged and pinted out on account of her face going wrong in the shadow. Sometimes he laid it on the colors, and swore at me and things in general. He got that discouraged about himself, that on his low days he used to say to me, Jimes, remember one thing. If anything happens to me, the marriage is not to go out of here unfinished. It's worth a lot of them, my boy, and it's not a-goin' to go shabby for lack of pains. He said things to that effect repeated. He was workin' in the picture that last day, before he went to his club. He kept the carriage waitin' near an hour while he put on a stroke, and then drawed back for to look at it, and then put on another, careful-like. After he had his gloves on, he come back and took away the brushes I was starting to clean, and put in another touch or two. It's a comin', Jimes, he says, by God if it ain't, and with that he goes out. It was cruel sudden what come after. That night I was lookin' to his clothes at the house when they brought him home. He was conscious, but when I ran downstairs for to help lift him up, I knowed he was a finished man. After we got him into bed, he kept a-lookin' restless at me, and then a lied a-elling and a-jerkin' of his hand. Finally he quite raised it and shot his thumb out toward the wall. He wants water. Ring, Jimes, says Lady Elling Placid, but I knowed he was pointin' to the shop. Lady Treffinger, says I, bold, he's pointin' to the studio. He means about the marriage. He told me today as how he never wanted it sold unfinished. Is that it, Sir Hugh? He smiled and nodded sly and closed his eyes. Thank you, Jimes, says Lydie Elling, placid. Then he opened his eyes and looked long and hard at Lydie Elling. Of course I'll try to do as you'd wish about the picture, you, if that's what's troubling you, she says quiet. With that he closed his eyes and he never opened them. He died unconscious at four that morning. You see, sir, Lydie Elling was always cruel hard on the marriage. From the first it went wrong, and Sir Hugh was out of temper pretty constant. She came into the studio one day and looked at the picture and asked him why he didn't throw it up and quit a worritin himself. He answered sharp, and with that she said as how she didn't see what there was to make such a row about nohow. She spoke a mind about that picture free, and Sir Hugh swore on it and let a handful of brushes fly at his study and Lydy Elling picked up her skirts careful and chill and drifted out of the studio with her eyes calm and her chin high. If there was one thing Lydy Elling had no comprehension of, it was the usefulness of swearing. So the marriage was a sore thing between em. She is uncommon calm, but uncommon bitter is Lydy Elling. She never come near the studio since that day she went out a-holdin' up of her skirts. When her friends goes over, she excuses herself along of the strain. Strain! God! James ground his wrath short in his teeth. I'll tell you what I'll do, James, and it's our only hope. I'll see Lady Ellen tomorrow. The Times says she returned today. 
You take the picture back to its place, and I'll do what I can for it. If anything is done to save it, it must be done through Lady Ellen Treffinger herself. That much is clear. I can't think that she fully understands the situation. If she did, you know, she really couldn't have any motive. He stopped suddenly. Somehow, in the dusky lamplight, her small, close-sealed face came ominously back to him. He rubbed his forehead and knitted his brows thoughtfully. After a moment he shook his head and went on, I am positive that nothing can be gained by high-handed methods, James. Captain Gresham is one of the most popular men in London, and his friends would tear up Treffinger's bones if he were annoyed by any scandal of our making. And this scheme you propose would inevitably result in scandal. Lady Ellen has, of course, every legal right to sell the picture. Treffinger made considerable inroads upon her estate, and, as she is about to marry a man without income, she doubtless feels that she has a right to replenish her patrimony. He found James amenable, though doggedly sceptical. He went down into the street, called a carriage, and saw James and his burden into it. Standing in the doorway, he watched the carriage roll away through the drizzling mist, weave in and out among the wet black vehicles and darting cab-lights, until it was swallowed up in the glare and confusion of the strand. It is rather a fine touch of irony, he reflected, that he, who is so out of it, should be the one to really care. Poor Treffinger, he murmured, as, with a rather spiritless smile, he turned back into his hotel. Poor Treffinger, sic transit gloria. The next afternoon McMaster kept his promise. When he arrived at Lady Mary Percy's house, he saw preparations for a function of some sort, but he went resolutely up the steps, telling the footman that his business was urgent. Lady Ellen came down alone, excusing her sister. She was dressed for receiving, and McMaster had never seen one so beautiful. The color in her cheeks sent a softening glow over her small, delicately cut features. McMaster apologized for his intrusion, and came unflinchingly to the object of his call. He had come, he said, not only to offer her his warmest congratulations, but to express his regret that a great work of art was to leave England. Lady Treffinger looked at him in wide-eyed astonishment. Surely, she said, she had been careful to select the best of the pictures for the ex-gallery in accordance with Sir Hugh Treffinger's wishes. And did he—pardon uh, me, Lady Treffinger, but in mercy set my mind at rest—did he or did he not express any definite wish concerning this one picture, which to me seems worth all the others, unfinished as it is? Lady Treffinger paled perceptibly but it was not the pallor of confusion. When she spoke there was a sharp tremor in her smooth voice, the edge of a resentment that tore her like pain. I think his man has some such impression, but I believe it to be utterly unfounded. I cannot find that he ever expressed any wish concerning the disposition of the picture to any of his friends. Unfortunately, Sir Hugh was not always discreet in his remarks to his servants. Captain Gresham, Lady Ellingham, and Miss Ellingham announced a servant appearing at the door. 
There was a murmur in the hall, and McMaster greeted the smiling captain and his aunt as he bowed himself out. To all intents and purposes the marriage of Phaedra was already entombed in a vague continent in the Pacific, somewhere on the other side of the world. End of Story 11 End of Youth and the Medusa and the Troll Garden